Welcome to The Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. And with me today are Marcus de Sautoy, the distinguished mathematician and popular science writer and author, most recently, of What We Cannot Know, which is a book about what we cannot know. And also Stephen Poole, who's the author of a new book called Rethink, which is about, well, rethinking. It's about old ideas that find a new time in a new age. To start with, Marcus, can I ask you, why, why would you write a book about what you don't know, rather than one about what you do? Well, I think what we don't know as scientists is what drives us, actually. What we do know is, is fun, but actually what drives a scientist is what we do not know. Part of the motivation for the book was actually taking over this new professorship that I've got in Oxford, which is the Professor for the Public Understanding of Science. And I kind of, uh, when I took it over, I mean, it's kind of a funny title, and I think everyone expects I must know the whole of science. And certainly, you know, journalists would phone me up and just ask me sort of random questions that would expect me to know the answer to. And but it got me thinking, well, could we reach a moment where actually science knows it all? Um, there are so many discoveries in the, the newspapers every week. You open the, the newspaper to find yet another discovery of gravitational waves or the, uh, another extraordinary achievement. And I think you know, physics has talked about an idea, the theory of everything, that we might reach a moment when we actually have got all the answers. But I was intrigued then to, to turn that sort of um, enthusiasm you know, to tone it down a little bit and say, OK, well, maybe there are some questions in science that, by their very nature, we will never be able to answer. I mean, perhaps there aren't any. Perhaps we could potentially answer everything. So this is a book not about the things we don't know. It's the things that we may never know. So what we don't know is our, as drives us as scientists. What we may never know, of course, is our nemesis. That, those are the questions we're, we're frightened of because we may never be able to resolve them. But maybe there aren't any. But are we getting a better sense of what we may never know? Well, I think that it's interesting. I'm a mathematician. In my own subject, we actually have a theorem, a, a mathematical theorem, which looked in on itself and was able to articulate limits of knowledge. It's called Gödel's incompleteness theorem. And it says that within any system for mathematics, there will be true statements about numbers within that system that you can't prove are true. Um, so mathematics has its own sort of theorem about limitations of knowledge. So, so I suppose it's been proved. Yeah, it has exactly. I mean, it's it's interesting because um, this is very relevant because you by working outside the system, you identify that the statement is true, but you can prove that within the system it's unprovable. So you kind of get these layers, you know, sort of turtles on turtles. It, you might expand the system, but there'll always be another uh, unprovable truth within that new system. Um, but the, I wanted to look at science then. Could I apply a kind of mathematical mindset to questions in science? I mean, if the universe is infinite, could we ever know that? Consciousness, the hard problem of consciousness, is one that many philosophers say, by its very nature, it's protected as a problem you can answer. Um, we've been digging inside the atom, discovering it's made out of electrons, protons, neutrons, then they fall apart into quarks. But is that the final layer? Could, could we ever know that? And quantum physics has its own kind of um, uh, Gödel theorem, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which has at its heart that you can't know both the position and the momentum of, of an electron at the same time. It articulates limits of knowledge within the theory. So that's as far as you'll get for completeness, you think? There'll be a, a way of knowing what you can't know. 
possibly, but I think it's always dangerous at any point in history to say you'll you can you, you'll never know this. And uh, I kept a few stories in mind. There's a great one of Auguste Comte, who in 1839 said, "Well, we're never ever going to be know what a star is made of, the chemical composition of a star." Um, and fair statement. We're never going to visit a star, probably in his lifetime, certainly maybe in our lifetime, to get inside a star, dig the stuff out. But what he hadn't accounted for is that. Well, actually, every night the star is visiting us. And within 20 years, we'd been able to analyse the light and actually get a very complete description of what a star is made out of. So I, I use these stories as a sort of cautionary tale in my attempts to try and articulate, oh, well, we're never going to know that. Well, you, your book, you do quote Donald Rumsfeld's famous remark about known knowns it was and irresistible. known unknowns, which yeah. is obviously very attractive. But your book, you know, you're interested in known unknowns but there's something i think steve your book in a way deals with unknown knowns the idea of things that we've discovered but haven't really realized things we've known that about. perhaps yeah. we forgot we knew or exactly. that were rejected i mean marcus mentions uh, the theory of atoms that was thought of in a spectacular bit of armchair reasoning two and a half millennia ago by democritus who just by reasoning about how puddles evaporated and how you could smell a loaf of bread before it came into the room, he reasoned that there must be some fundamental indivisible particles of matter, which he called atoms, that which cannot be cut from the Greek. And then, as Marx explains in his book, actually, the Platonists uh, and uh, other mathematicians in ancient Greece decided this couldn't be true because the existence of irrational numbers, which have an infinitely long decimal expansion, seemed to imply that reality must be continuous. So the atomic hypothesis was suppressed for about a millennium and a half until it was then rediscovered after the scientific revolution. on the grounds of slightly revolution. cropped mathematical insight. Well, on the grounds of sort of an analogy between mathematics and reality, which, uh, as Marcus talks about in his book, as I, I do in mine, actually, is not necessarily always a good analogy. I mean, there's huge mystery at the bottom of science, which is how can we do mathematics at all? There's a famous paper called On the Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics and the Natural Sciences. Why is it that reality seems to be such that we can model it with maths? Nobody knows the answer to that one. Well, I, I think I, well I, actually, in my book, I kind of propose that, you know, I, I mean, the book actually explores a little bit um, the idea of transcendence and its connection to uh, religion and the idea of um, perhaps uh, redefining the God of the gaps as a positive idea, you know, may, maybe, and actually this is um, a philosopher friend of mine in New College in Oxford um, referred me to Herbert McCabe, um, who's a Marxist theologian, was um, in Oxford. Um, and he has uh, an interesting uh, statement in some, one of his essays about um, uh, God is the expression that there are the existence of an unanswered question in the universe. Um, uh, so, so I kind of... Uh, looked at this as an idea, the the transcendent ideas as being something that might... Um, and, you know, if you're... One of the big unknowns is why is there something rather than nothing? And I think for a lot of religious scientists um, who are kind of deists rather than theists, maybe, they don't believe their God acts in the world, they're deists because... And I think Einstein may have been in that sort of mould. He talks about God a lot, but it's kind of just... Well, I'm saying you know, that the answer to this idea of why there's something from nothing, I'm going to call that God and then just sort of in investigate uh, the, the consequences. It becomes what you call a placeholder. Yeah, yeah I think but deism it, is still a very respectable view because, you know, there's this big article of faith at the bottom of all scientific activity, which is the faith that the universe is somehow going to be transparent to our rationality. Yes. And a lot of people have thought over the centuries, a lot of very respectable scientists, well, if reality is 
rationally understandable, it must have been rationally designed in the first place, because in theory you might think the universe could just be this chaotic place with all kinds of epiphenomenal rubbish flying around, and we wouldn't be able to make any sense of it. So the, the fact that we do is actually one argument for there being some kind of initial designer or Well, supreme I would say, you see, my thesis is that mathematics um, is something which is outside of time. I don't think there's a moment when mathematics was created, unlike kind of stuff. Stuff was probably it's, it's so, discovered rather than invented. Well, I think I think there's a uh, we have a very schizophrenic relationship <laughs> to that um, question. Um, so you're a Platonist. I am a Platonist, and I believe that maybe um, you know people often say, "Oh, uh, God is a mathematician." I might. I'd invert that and say, actually, well, maybe mathematics is the god. Maybe you, you need something which is sort of outside of time, else you get this kind of, well, who created the creator? Um, which is how I sort of bat uh, religion away from my kids. But actually, if you say, well, mathematics isn't, it was never created, maybe it's, we're a physicalized piece of mathematics. And that's why the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics is because this universe is a piece of mathematics. Yeah, that's really interesting. As, and as I say in my book, this kind of thinking being quite common in modern cosmology and maths and, and fundamental physics is a kind of correction to what we see a lot of in popular science writing and popularizations where we're told everything has to be empirical. Everything's all about experimentation and testing. But there's a lot of stuff that comes straight out of the mathematics which is rationalism, which we are r routinely told, well, that's just armchair thinking, you can't know anything about the world just by sitting back in your armchair and not doing any experiments. But actually you can, and these two poles of discovery are still very evenly balanced. Is I that think. where that, um, the one thing that people who don't really know about science know about science, Karl Popper's saying that the category of the scientific proof is it can be disproved? Well, I actually make an attack on Karl Popper because I think that um, uh, very often, how can you know whether thing that the piece of evidence you've got, which you think has falsified your theory, maybe that in turn is false? And so, you know, how can you judge either way that um, a piece of evidence actually you might have misinterpreted the evidence and thrown out your theory, and actually it was the evidence that was wrong? So I think this is there's a real challenge. I think uh, I think we're all being brought up as scientists. That's not a challenge Popper. to the philosophical point Popper's making, is it? Well, I think he says that any science. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's fair enough. I mean, he, he's saying that, um, you know, good science is one that has the chance to be proved wrong. And, mm. uh, but actually, we have a lot of science on the books now, which comes from sort of mathematical rationalism. Yeah, there's a big controversy now with people writing letters to the pages of Nature about, I think Marcus and, Mar and I both mentioned the problems of falsifiability when you're talking about string theory or the multiverse or things yeah. like that. It's very difficult to design an experiment that might prove that wrong or right. And so some people, as some physicists are saying, well, we, must, we can't abandon the principle of falsifiability, therefore these theories are nonsense. And other people are saying, Sean, Sean Carroll, who's a very famous cosmologist, he just says, well, so much the worse for falsifiability. I mean, if reality is really like that, then we have to abandon that principle. Reality doesn't care about our principles. I think we're also working on such small timescales as uh, scientists as well, that there's criticism of string theory and multiverses um, that, oh, it, you know, there's no uh, testable theory, there's no experiment. But, you know, this is within 20, 30 years. Um, and I don't think either of those will remain un untestable. There, there could be very indirect evidence for, for both a multiverse and string theory. So I don't think that those... Um, they didn't, didn't come into my category of things. We will never know whether there is a multiverse. No, I think there there might be ways that other universes could have interactions with ours, which we might be able to see, or that string theory will sh throw up predictions through the mathematics that that 
we can indirectly know about. Yes, you do also touch in your book on the idea that we might have a multi, you know, parallel universes as part of a multiverse in which the physics is different. Yes. Would it be possible to have these multiverses in which the maths is different? Or is your position that's the only thing that would obtain? So actually, in mathematics, we're quite happy with a sort of multi-mathematical verse that, um, uh, that actually, whilst physics is interested in trying to describe a theory which describes this universe, if we come up with new theories, and there's a lot of historical evidence of how we saw uh, Euclidean geometry was just one of many sorts of geometry, or the um, uh, the understanding of infinity, that there are actually different sorts of mathematics which um, have different nature of infinity. So, so I don't think that this is... Uh, I know that there are different models of mathematics, and we're interested in investigating all of those, and they're mutually incompatible, because, you know, the, in one this statement is true and in the other one it's false, but internally they are consistent. So, so I think that's a real difference between mathematics and kind of science. Science wants to do the particular. I'm quite interested in, in, in actually exploring all the mathematical uh, universes that, that we can create. It reminds me there's a nice idea in one of Ian M. Banks's uh, science fiction novels. I can't remember which one, but uh, they get to some point in the universe and it's some place through which a lot of different alien cultures travel and somebody makes the point, it's weird because all these different civilizations have different theories of fundamental physics, but near this exotic part of space, they all work. And it's almost as though, I think there's a very profound point there in that they all have different models for reality, and yet somehow they all work. Well, the models all describe the same reality, or are they crashing their spaceships into each other because... No, 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 it's, 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 the, their spaceships are all flying, flying along perfectly well. But um, the idea that two different models could be equally good at predicting one phenomenon is one that we know from the history of science, because when Copernicus's theory that the Earth travelled around the Sun was first mooted, uh, this Dutch, Danish guy, Tycho Brahe, came up with a rival theory in which all the planets went round the Sun except the Earth, and the Sun and all the planets went round the Earth. And this theory was mathematically equivalent to the Copernican theory. It made exactly the same predictions, and it agreed with observations in exactly the same way. So stop joke about... You know, the Earth. We know the Earth goes. Sun goes goes around the Earth because it looks that way. How would it look if the Earth went around the Sun? Indeed, yes. But for, for for a long time, there was nothing to choose between those two theories on the basis of what agreed with the evidence more. Of the various rethought ideas you've come across in your book, is there something that they have in common? Do you think something that that is intrinsic to an idea that's going to get rethought or needs to be rethought? Well, one thing that ideas that could potentially be rethought have in common, I think, is if they're what I call a black box idea. So you know that something's going on, but you don't know what the mechanism is. And so one of the reasons I wrote this book, because I came across uh, this spectacular series of experiments done by a French biologist on rats. And by, by effectively torturing a rat and making it very depressed, you create a rat who's very depressed and stressed for the rest of its life. She then mated those stressed rats with perfectly normal rats who'd had a, a perfectly happy life. And the rat babies were stressed and depressed from birth. And she being French, she knew about Lamarck, the French evolutionary theorist who was writing in the early 1800s, 50 the years before guy. Darwin. The giraffe guy. Lamarck supposedly, and actually the story's more complicated, but supposedly he thought that giraffes got their long necks because they all started off with short necks and then they sort of wanted to get a longer neck so they could eat the leaves slightly higher up. The, the translation there is more nuanced uh, than we often hear. Anyway, the point is that she discovered that if a rat's depression can be passed on to its offspring, but that's an, a characteristic that it's acquired during its lifetime, and that is what became the heresy of Lamarckism, 
Lamarck thought that acquired characteristics can be inherited. And then once people rediscovered the work of Mendel and decided that genes were fixed, you were born with your genome and you pass that same genome onto your offspring mixed with your partner's genome, they thought, well, there, there's no mechanism by which Lamarckism could be true. So we're going to think, it, for most of the 20th century, it was this ridiculed theory of science. And yet this new work in epigenetics seems to imply that, at least in some cases, something like that might be going on. So they've sort of opened the black box of Lamarck's idea that an acquired characteristic could be inherited, and they found a mechanism which is methylation of certain proteins in the brain and so forth, which can actually affect the germ cells. So it's not a knockdown argument with any idea. You just say, well, I don't see how that could work, uh, because one day we might find out how it works, and therefore the idea itself might work. And this is true in theories of consciousness, which Marcus discusses as well, I think. I mean, there are people who say, we have no idea how the operation of neurons, which is an objective neurochemical electrical fact, can give rise to first-person subjective experience. Therefore, we think there's no mechanism through which that can happen. It's in principle impossible. Well, it seems that way to us, but who knows, in a thousand years, we may figure it out. Oh, but it does seem very unlikely to a lot of people, which is why I talk about the theory of panpsychism, which is another very old theory which is coming back, which basically says, look... We think that matter can't give rise to mind, but why do we think we know so much about matter anyway? Actually, matter is really weird, and modern fundamental physics says it's a particle and a wave at the same time. It's an excitation of a field. So the panpsychist, the modern panpsychist, says, what makes you think that, that consciousness or experience isn't a fundamental property of matter, along with all the other fundamental properties of matter we know about? And he sort of gets around the problem that way. In, in a way, he kind of avoids the problem, and some people criticise it for that. I, I think it's interesting there's a, quite often a, a question of language and redefining uh, language. So I think, you know, consciousness we tend to think of as an on-off switch, um, but it... it probably is a spectrum and you know we can even see that in our in our own lives our, our consciousness goes through very, very many different levels i also was interested by a sort of more panpsychic view that is coming through from uh, neuroscientists so uh, there's a guy uh, giulio tononi who's come up with a, a mathematical coefficient of consciousness and he believes he's looking at the difference between sleep and an awake brain you know what's the different uh, way the network behaves and he's identified a very specific sort of difference in behavior which he's been able to sort of quantify but that means that you can apply that measure to any network the the internet um, a city uh, a cell um, and so he believes that there are many things which will have maybe a very low level of consciousness like like a, a cell because it's got a kind of a, a sort of feedback mechanism within it um, but that we should actually recognize that the universe itself will have a measure of consciousness and and you know of course we always believe we're at the top of, uh, of the tree and, and there are cl clearly many things which may be beyond that so, so I think it's um, it, it, it is interesting these things coming back. The other one that I was very intrigued by in my book was the idea of our uh, of the universe. That you know, the ancient Greeks we thought it's, we, you know we were in the middle and there was a big void around us, um, and then we've discovered no, actually we're a galaxy and there are many galaxies out there, uh, but. Because we've discovered recently, within the last 50 years, that the expansion of the universe is accelerating, this is going to have the effect of pushing 
all of the galaxies outside our cosmic horizon. So actually, we realise that we're going to return to a position where the universe actually looks like it did when it was described by the ancient Greeks, um, a, a sort of a galaxy of stars, and then just a void. We will not be able to know about the galaxies um, had we evolved um, at that point where they'd all been pushed over the cosmic horizon. So suddenly astronomy will become not about telescopes, but about libraries. We will look back to see what did people see in the past. Oh, there were galaxies there, other <laughs> galaxies. And some, some of the ancient Greeks uh, devise early multiverse theories on the basis of asking very simple questions like, well, if there's just one universe, what's outside it? What came before it? And there's one ancient Greek theory of lots of universes they call cosmoi crashing around in infinite space. And when I talk to a cosmologist about modern multiverse theory and how it is, in a way, a kind of revival of Fred Hoyle's steady state theory, only on the level of galaxies and universes rather than galaxies. It turns out, you know, I was asking him, could you ever test a multiverse theory? And he said, yeah, maybe you could, because if there are these different universes, you'd expect occasionally one to collide with another, and that would leave this kind of hoop, a kind of disturbed ring on the cosmic microwave background. And that made me think, that's exactly what those guys in ancient Greece were talking about two and a half thousand years ago. <laughs> this is a dent in the universe. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both very much indeed for your time. May your books sell many copies. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to our weekly Monday podcast at iTunes. And if you didn't enjoy it, subscribe anyway. There's bound to be one along you like soon. <laughs>